Andrew, do you know the song Happy Birthday? I do. Because I believe it is Sam's 18th birthday today. <laughs> it is? <laughs> I don't know. It's fine, fine, fine. 21st birthday. There we go. Uh, well, maybe we ought not sing it, but you know what would be fun is if 10, 15 people at a time throughout the rest of the morning just serenade whenever they see Sam in the hall with happy birthday. I like the sound of I that. I think that would yeah. be a lot of fun. I think that would be pretty good. I've got nothing to say. I was going to say, if we sang happy birthday, I was going to make you pick a key for everyone to start, but I'm great. Okay, so I'm glad we don't have to. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Father God, uh, we thank you for this day, the Palm Sunday, the day that we remember that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he looked at the people, and he wept over the people because of their lostness. And Father, that would be true today throughout the world. Many know your Son as Savior, but so many do not. And Father, give us a heart to share the gospel. And Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word, and we look at the life of Elijah, we pray, Lord, that we would be inspired to live a life much like he lived. Guide our time, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen. A few weeks ago, uh, one of my adult kids went to a closed-access country. If you're familiar with a closed-access country, you know that it is illegal to proselytize or to share the gospel. But she was going there for precisely that reason. And you think, well, Romans 13 says to obey your government. But you remember in Acts chapter 5 which is a passage about gospel preaching and sharing, the authorities came up to Peter and the other apostles, and they said, we told you you were not to share the gospel, but you have filled the city of Jerusalem with the news of Jesus. And you remember in Acts 5, verse 29, Peter said, we need to obey God rather than man. In other words... While we are to be the best citizens and the most obedient citizens as Christ followers, there is higher law, and the higher law is God's law, not ours, not man's. Now, I didn't actually come to tell you about my daughter going to a closed-access country. What I want to tell you is about the events leading up to it. The night before she was about to leave... Suddenly, I awoke at midnight. I believe that God awoke in me, and he told me to look at my phone. Now, you got to understand that I am not of the generation that bothers to look at one's phone. When I get home, I put the phone on a counter, and I don't pay much attention to it, and I never get out of bed at midnight to look at my phone. It just doesn't occur. But I felt impressed by the Lord to look at my phone, and there was a series of texts from this particular daughter, and she told me that she is quite sick, she is throwing up, she has the flu. And so we began to communicate back and forth, and I prayed with her and spent some time with her, and we began to strategize what she is going to do, because clearly she cannot go on an international flight. 
Then I went back to bed, and I think God woke me up a little bit later, and I prayed for my daughter, and went back to bed, and he woke me up again, and I prayed for my daughter, and then I got out of bed very early in the morning, and my daughter and I began to communicate again. And we decided that what is wise is that we spend several hundred dollars and reorient her tickets and have her leave two days from now. Because how is she going to drive four and a half hours to O'Hare and take a 13 and a half hour flight to her destination while she's sick with the flu? And we continued to pray and we continued to ask God to intervene. And about an hour later, she called me up and said, Dad, I'm not throwing up anymore. I said, well, that's fine, honey, but nobody's going to be wanting to sit next to you in a car or an airplane. We still need to redo these tickets. And about an hour later, she called me up and said, I have no fever. I, I'm, I think I'm okay, but my team has already left. I'm going to proceed down to O'Hare on my own. And about partway down, she actually met up with a team, and I had told her to get a mask, and she got in the car with them and went down to O'Hare, and we thought she'll get a hotel for a night or two, and then she'll go overseas. But she felt so well, and against her dad's best advice... She thought, I can get on this plane. And I'm thinking to myself, 13 and a half hours, she has the flu, this is not good. And she got on the plane, and this is an international flight. If you've flown internationally, you know how incredibly rare this is. And if I told you the airlines, you would really know how rare it is. Her entire row was empty. She was the only one in it. And she flew 13 and a half hours and slept 13 hours. And she was the freshest when she arrived on the soil out of her entire team. And don't tell me God doesn't do miracles. Now, I don't think that's quite a miracle like raising a son from the dead. But it is a miracle. And God did a miracle in her life. And in fact, she was used in this closed access country to bring someone into a discovery Bible study. Well, I want to pick up and read about the miracle in today's text in 1 Kings 17. Let me read verses 17 to 24. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is true. As you and I begin, we are introduced again to a widow. We've already met her. 
You remember that she was married. I assume she had a wonderful marriage, and then her husband died. Her life has been a roller coaster. She finally meets a man. She marries the man. He dies, but she has a son, and there's almost nothing more distressful 3,000 years ago in the Middle East than a woman who is a widow with a son. But God hears her needs and sends to her a prophet named Elijah. And one of the added benefits of Elijah is that the flour and the oil do not run out. She is provided for. But then tragically, her son dies. And I can imagine that the horror of this is just beyond what she could ever dream of. Some of you know about this. Some of you have lost a child. Some of you have lost a loved one. And the pain is, is incredible. My heart goes out to you. We really do feel great grief for you. Well, she has incredible grief. And she comes to this man of God in verse 18. And she says, What have you against me, O man of God? Have you come to bring remembrance of my sin, an unnamed sin. Undoubtedly, she thinks that the tragedy that has struck her family, her life, is because of a sin. I know what that's like. Who among us has not been guilty of a sin? We've recognized the sin in our life, maybe even confessed and repented, But we fear that God's discipline will come crashing down on us and that there will be some incredible repercussion beyond ourselves, maybe even to our extended family. Who has not perhaps thought that? I recall a man a few years ago who called me up. He also named an unnamed sin and he worried for the life of his family and he worried that that God might take his family. Who hasn't thought that? And I assured him that that is not God's normal mode of operanda. Occasionally we see it, but it's very rare. We see it in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where David and Bathsheba are involved in a sordid affair, and God takes their child. And you think, oh, what a heartbreak, this poor child. Don't think poor child. The child immediately went into the presence of God but the horror and the pain for the father, the mother, David, Bathsheba. I think of Joshua chapter 7. You have a man named Achan. God said, do not disobey me when you take what belongs to me when you go into the promised land. But Achan was greedy and he took it. And remember, Achan and his family died. But in that case, I believe his family was complicit in the sin They knew it as well as Achan, and they suffered consequences. As a general rule, I do not believe that God takes the lives of our family because of our sin. I assured that father, that dad who came to me, that I didn't think that would happen to his family, and it didn't happen. I think when tragedy strikes, perhaps it's to bring glory to God's name or to cause somebody to look up rather than out. That was true for this widow. 
or often when tragedy strikes, it's because we live in a sin-tainted world. And the results of being in a sin-tainted world are not always good, but sometimes very painful to us. Well, as we continue, I'm just going to re- read verses 19 and 20 from our passage. Verse 19 says this, And he, Elijah, said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? And just picture what happens in those two verses. This mother is weeping. Her child has died and she's holding him, probably a toddler, in her arms. And Elijah comes and just tenderly grabs him and, and picks him up and carries him up the stairs, puts him on Elijah's own bed. So remember, Elijah calls himself a sojourner. He didn't have a home, but he's been living with this widow for probably a year. This is the closest thing he has to a home. And this widow and her son are the closest thing that Elijah has to a family. So it's not just the mom that's mourning the death of her son, it's Elijah as well. And you can hear his heartbreak, his brokenness as he cries out to the Lord and is echoing the same thing that the mother says. And basically he's saying, God, I don't understand. God, why did you allow this to happen? God, where are you? Does that sound familiar? Isn't that a prayer that we've asked when we, or when we've prayed, when we don't understand what's going on in our life, when we don't understand why, we cry out to the Lord, God, why this cancer diagnosis? God, why are my parents getting a divorce? God, why have you allowed my loved one to pass away? God, why am I still struggling with this temptation or this personal struggle? And we cry out to the Lord and ask why, because we don't always understand, just like Elijah. And sometimes we ask God why, because he answers our prayers in a complete opposite direction of what we intended. We pray and say, God, heal my disease, but the illness remains. Or, God, heal my chronic pain, but the pain doesn't subside. Or we pray, God, heal my broken relationship with my parents or with my son or my daughter, but nothing seems to change. And it leaves us asking, why? Now, Jeff read through the whole passage when we started this morning, so we know the end of the story. Spoiler alert, right? Uh, spoiler alert, next week the tomb is empty. I'm just going to tell you that one too. Okay, great. So that means we don't have to come to church next week? Uh, no, Christers, you'll be here. Okay, great. So <laughs> we know the end of the story. We know that God raises this child from the dead. But just think hypothetically of all of the other moms and dads in Elijah's day that had a sick son or a daughter that probably prayed the same exact prayer, God, heal my son, heal my daughter. But we don't have any record of any more resurrections or miraculous healings during this time. So just because God answered this prayer doesn't mean he answers all of these same prayers with a yes. So we have to understand that God doesn't promise to answer our why questions. Because some of us here have experienced a similar, even that same kind of loss. The loss of a family or friend or a loved one. And our hearts 
go out to you, and maybe you begged and pleaded with the Lord, asking Him for a miracle, and for some reason, beyond what any of us can understand, He said, no. And our hearts break. But we have to understand that God doesn't promise to give us the 30,000-foot view of our lives. He hasn't promised to answer the why question, and He didn't answer Elijah's why question either. And we might not understand why until we get to eternity. But we serve a God that promises to be present in the midst of our pain. He promises to hear and to listen to our prayer, and He says that we can trust Him. That's why as Christians we walk by faith and not by sight. God is good. He's beyond us. And we have to hold fast to the truth that God is present with us in the pain, and He can work everything in our life together for good. That's exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where he said this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Paul didn't say most things. He didn't say some things. No, all things work together for good. And that's incredible that our God can work through even the worst of our circumstances for our good in His glory. So even though we don't always understand the why, God still asks us to trust Him. Let me keep reading in our passage, starting in verse 21. Then he, Elijah, stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Now, we might read this and think, oh, cool, just another resurrection that happened in the Bible. But as we read Scripture, we have to understand that there's probably 10 examples of someone being brought back to life from the dead through the whole Bible. I mean, that's thousands of years. This is not an everyday experience. It's not even a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And all those other nine examples happen after the time of Elijah. So as far as we know, no one had ever been brought back to life up to this point. So just for Elijah to pray this, to ask God for this, is a crazy request. And we know that God had been working through Elijah in miraculous ways. The widow and her oil and stopping the rain, as we've been hearing about the last couple weeks. But this, asking God to raise this child from the dead, that's crazy. But Elijah believes in a God that has the power over even death itself. So he prays and asks God to restore the life back to this child. And our text says that God doesn't just hear Elijah's prayer, he listens. And God answers and brings back this child to life. You can just imagine the joy of the mother and Elijah to see this child live. What an incredible example of faith. But before we place Elijah on a pedestal and think of him as this wonderful example of faith, which he is so beyond us, we have to remember what the author of James said in James chapter 5. He said this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was just like us. So when we read an account like this, it should increase our faith. It should encourage us, exhort us to pray big things, to pray bold things, to pray prayers of faith, knowing that we serve a God who has power of death, even over death itself. And our God might not answer our prayers the way that we always desire or the way we hope. 
that our God is good and we can trust him. So how many verses did you do? Um, five. I think five, yeah. And I did two. How many are you getting? One. <laughs> Speak correspondingly but lengthwise. No, no, but it is one verse. Uh, verse 24 is packed with application. Notes. It always sure. is. Always We're just going to unpack all this application <laughs> in verse 24. Get uh, so, comfortable. Uh, so after this miraculous moment, let's, let's look at the closing confession of the widow in verse 24. The woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. So in this final word, in this final confession of this widow, we see that she's finally finding the words to say to Elijah after this miraculous moment. And as I try to think about what this must have looked like, I imagine that the widow is probably still trembling a little bit after the shock of everything that's just transpired. There's probably tears still flooding from her eyes, and I imagine maybe there's even a smile starting to break across her face that she thought would never return after the death of her child. And notice what she responds by saying. She looks at Elijah and she says, now I know, now I'm sure, now I'm confident that you are a man, a true man of God. What an incredible commendation she's giving to Elijah. And as I was reading and studying through this text this week, I couldn't help but ask myself the question, do people look at my life and think, now there's, there's a man of God? And you know, I think that'd be an important question for all of us to consider today. When people look at our lives and our lips, when they see our, our words and our walk, do they look at us and think, now there is a man or there is a woman or there is a young person who's a person of God. Because as a Christ follower, that should be one of our greatest desires for people to be able to say about us. So let's ask ourselves that question and say, what are the attributes that Elijah exemplified in this narrative for someone to identify him as a true man of God? Well, thinking of what the answer can't be, going back to what Pastor Sam just read from the book of James chapter 5, uh, scripture makes it clear, Elijah wasn't a man of God because he had some type of nature that's unlike ours. He had a nature just like ours. He wasn't a super Christian towering above all subsequent Christ followers. He wasn't uh, someone with a spiritual nature that we can never attain to, so that's out of the question which brings us back to the original question, well, then what were the attributes that Elijah exhibited? What does it look like to be a man or a woman of God? Well, I think there's, there's at least four. There's probably more, but I think there's at least four things that we can draw from this text. And the first would be this. Elijah responded to tragedy with prayer over a performance. Elijah didn't see this as an opportunity to make a name for himself. He didn't see this as an opportunity to think, now I get to do something miraculous and I get to become the big shot prophet in all of Israel. He doesn't do that. Instead, what does he respond with? Private prayer. I couldn't help but think about this in contrast to so many of the spiritual faith healers that we see in our culture today. When I was growing up, sometimes we would, you know, go through uh, the different channels and we'd land on one of the, the kind of Christian networks and you would see some of these spiritual faith healers. And though the person might have been different, the formula was always the same. They were the center of attention. 
And not only that, they were always uh, healing in front of crowds of thousands being televised to millions more. They were always putting on some type of flashy performance. And at the end, they were always trying to, uh, they were always trying to gain financially from their healing and their performance. But that's not what Elijah did at all. He didn't respond with a public performance. He responded with private prayer. He understood that ultimately God alone could rescue this child. And God alone deserves to be the hero of the story. Elijah understood that he was just a vessel being used by God for his ultimate glory. A true man or woman of God realizes that we, you, I, we, we are never the center or the hero of the story. And we might be wondering, well, how does that apply to us? I'm not healing anybody or I'm not bringing people back from the dead. That, that's true. But all of us, to some degree, we have been given gifts by the Spirit once we placed our trust in Christ. And uh, we are called to use those gifts for God. And I wonder how many of us might struggle with using our gifts as a public performance rather than a way to bring honor and glory to God. How many of us only want to serve when there's other people watching and we know that there will be applause? How many of us crave the spotlight and want to be uh, cultivating a big name for ourselves? A true man or woman of God realizes that we're just a mirror reflecting the praise ultimately back to God. We're just vessels that have been stewarded with those gifts for his glory. Second, Elijah responds to the widow with sacrifice over selfishness sacrifice over selfishness now if you're not well versed in the mosaic law if you haven't just been devouring leviticus and numbers and deuteronomy in your quiet time recently i i don't know why you wouldn't be but let's say you haven't been right and you will probably wouldn't realize that for elijah to come into contact with this uh, with this dead child would make him ceremonially unclean for a week according to numbers 19 11. And as a prophet and a good Torah-abiding Jew, Elijah would have taken his ceremonial cleanliness extremely seriously. So in the moment when this child passes away and the widow comes to Elijah and she's tugging on his arm and says, come, uh, take the child, look at the child, be with the child, he in that moment has a decision. Will I choose my self-interest of staying ceremonially clean or will I set that aside, be unclean for a week, and grieve with those who grieve, and weep with those who weep, and show love and compassion to this widow in her hour of greatest need. Well, obviously, Elijah makes the right decision. He comes and he embraces the child and takes the child, and he shows his deep heart of love and compassion in this moment. I think that's a great lesson for us, because sometimes I think that we can equate being a man or a woman of God with having the right biblical knowledge or the right theology or the right Christian worldview, and those things are absolutely important. Don't hear me uh, under, under emphasizing the importance of having a right theology. However, however, I think there can also be a danger in equating spiritual maturity with just our Bible knowledge. Because when we look at scripture and we recognize that sanctification means that we are becoming, in our hearts, being transformed more and more to look like Christ, that means our hearts are going to be defined by selflessness, by sacrifice, by humility. And there are a lot of people out there that know a lot about the Bible but don't have hearts that reflect those things. 
Elijah was a man who knew the right theology, but he lived it out in a life of sacrificial service for those around him. Third, Elijah responded to this tragedy with belief in God over blame. Undoubtedly, Elijah's love for this child was immense. As Sam and Jeff had said, this was probably the closest thing Elijah had to a child. This is the closest thing he had to a family. His heart broke when the child passed away. And how easy and tempting it might have been for Elijah to stand up to shake his fist at the Lord and to, even as Job did at one point, accuse God of wrongdoing and say, You messed up. This is your fault, God. You got it wrong. But Elijah didn't do that. He expresses confusion, but he brings his confusion to God. And that leads him to say, but ultimately, God, I trust in you. I have belief in you. And that belief and that confident, unwavering trust in the Lord leads Elijah to then pray and ask God to do the unthinkable and raise this child back from the dead. Notice the order there. Elijah believes first, and then he prays and asks God to work. How many times do we do the opposite? We say, God, prove yourself, and then I'll believe in you. Do this, and then I'll trust. Elijah doesn't do that. He believes, and that leads him to pray. And notice, Elijah's not confident of what the answer might be. He doesn't know if it will be a yes or a no, but he still trusts the Lord enough to come before him. Elijah shows us that a man or a woman of God chooses to trust God through the trials of our life, no matter the results. Fourth, Elijah responded to the widow with love over legalism. The entire narrative of 1 Kings 17 is a wonderful story and testimony to Elijah's commitment to showing love even to the least of these. I mean, just recount what we know about the widow so far. It's likely that she's not a Jew. It's likely that she's probably a pagan worshiper of Baal. Uh, the, the text shows us today that she has committed some type of sin that's so severe, she thinks that her son has died as God's just punishment. By every measure, she is a woman of the world. And yet, Elijah, contrast her with Elijah. Elijah is the just and righteous prophet of the Lord. How easy it might have been in this moment for Elijah to pull out the legalistic hammer and just condemn her for all of her mistakes. How easy it might have been for Elijah to think to himself, if she would clean herself up a little bit, then I can show her the love of God and a little bit of grace and a little bit of mercy. Elijah could have pulled out that, uh, that hammer of legalism and just shouted, guilty, dirty, sinful, broken. But that's not what we see at all. That's not how Elijah responds. Instead of pulling out the hammer of legalism, he embraces a lifestyle of love. Elijah certainly sees the broken uh, consequences in this woman's life from her sin, but he also sees the glory and the hope of what can come if God takes the pieces of her life and puts them back together and transforms her into a new creation. Elijah reaches out with love and compassion as he sees the difficulty and the plight of the widow and her son from the very beginning of this narrative. In a lot of ways, Elijah acted a lot like Jesus. Jesus was someone who was always looking out to the least of these, to the hurt, to the broken. Both men refused to live in a holy huddle. Both men understood what it looked like to see a crowd and be moved with compassion, recognizing they were like a sheep without a shepherd, needing the Lord of the harvest to send out workers 
into the harvest. Being a man or a woman of God requires a loving lifestyle over a legalistic heart. Now, when we hear that, it's easy to start thinking to ourselves, well, that sounds a lot like compromising. But I'm not talking about compromise here. I'm not talking about us backing away from calling sin, sin, or upholding God's just and righteous word. That, that's not what I'm talking about at all. But my fear is there are so many Christians in America who are known very well for being the hammer of legalism, but very little for being people who have a lifestyle of Christ-like love. So who are the sinners, who are the outcasts, who are the broken in our community and in our lives that desperately need a Christ follower to reach out with a lifestyle of love and show them the way to healing, hope, and holiness through Jesus Christ? You did get a lot out of that. Well, it was packed full of that. I told you it was packed. That's why we give them one verse. <laughs> As we think about these verses, uh, let's just review a few of the applications the first is, our sin could have collateral damage, but it is very rare that God strikes a family because of personal sin. More often than not, when tragedy strikes, it's in order to grow our faith, it's in order to display God's glory, or I think most often, because you and I live in a sin-tainted world, and with the fall of Adam and Eve, and Romans 5.12 says we would have done the same thing that Adam and Eve did. With their fall, our fall, came the destruction that we see. But a day is coming, a day is coming when God will right all wrongs. And if we know Jesus, we will be with him forever in glory. The second application I think of has to do with prayer. The power of prayer. In the Bible, there are really only three major time periods of miracles. The time of Moses, the time of Elijah and Elisha, and the time of Jesus and the apostles. There's a scattering miracle here or there besides those three time periods, but for the most part, those are the periods of the miracles. And yet we have the right, the privilege, to ask God to intervene to do the miraculous. Now, it's a miracle because it changes the norm, but God still rolls back stones. God still does the miraculous. It can be as mundane as healing my daughter to fly overseas, to see somebody of a culture that doesn't embrace Christ, wanting to hear more about Christ. That's a miracle, or it can be far more profound. But we have the privilege to turn to the God of the miraculous, who still rolls back stones and asks him to do beyond what we can imagine. We have to understand that this text is less about death and more about God's power over death. As we read the scripture, there's at least two different types of resurrections. What we have in our passage this morning is a temporary resurrection. This boy was brought back to life only to die again 20, 30, 40, 50 years later. Think of Jairus' daughter or Lazarus, the same thing, temporary resurrections. They were brought back to life only to die again. But as we read Scripture, there's only one person that was brought back to life to never die again. This is Jesus. He was eternally resurrected. And that's exactly what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 54. 
when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, your Lord Jesus Christ. Now in our passage, this young boy was just resurrected temporarily, only to die again. But Jesus has modeled for us something far greater, an eternal resurrection, being brought back to life to never die again. And if we turn away from our sin and by the power of God's Spirit trust in Christ as our Savior, then we can experience the same exact thing, an eternal resurrection. Because the moment a follower of Christ breathes his or her last here on earth, we immediately go into the presence of Christ, not just temporarily, but for the rest of eternity. Because this resurrection power is available to all who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. We serve a God that still rolls back stones. And we don't want to minimize the pain of losing a loved one. But as followers of Christ, something that we can hold on to as, as a piece of comfort is that we can look ahead to eternity. That our family and friends that also follow Christ that have passed on before us that we'll be reunited with them. What a day it will be. Because the tears that we shed today will be wiped away by Christ in eternity. You know, finally, this, uh, this passage encourages us to think missionally. Just think about this widow for a moment. If there's anyone who's unlikely to come to know the Lord, it's her. She lives in a pagan country. She herself has had a lifestyle of sin. She's far from the Lord. And I'm sure that it would have been e easy for Elijah to think, ah, there's no hope this woman could never change. But he doesn't. And her life is radically impacted through Elijah's witness. And she comes to an understanding of who Yahweh, of who the Lord is. This passage reminds us that anybody in any place at any time can be transformed by the gospel. So when we think, you know, I've been witnessing to this person for years, they're never going to respond. Don't give up. When we think about, oh, there's this a region of the world that's just beyond God's grace. No, there's not. Let us take the call that's embedded within this narrative to go out and to preach the gospel to all who need to hear it. Having hearts like Jesus in Matthew 9 where he looks across and sees the harvest and says it's plentiful. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers and let us be those workers this week. Let our hands and our feet be used by God to carry the message, to invite people to church, to invite them to come hear about the, the gospel message at Easter. But whatever context it is, let us be missionaries for God this week. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for the hope that's embedded in this passage, though this young boy was raised to once again die, die again, we realize that because of Christ, we can have hope of an eternal resurrection, of new resurrection bodies that can never be tainted by sin or decay or death again, where in eternity every tear will be wiped away by Christ. What a glorious hope that is. And Father, we know that that hope is only true for those of us who have a relationship with you through your grace by putting our trust in Christ alone. So, Father, I do pray that if there's anybody that doesn't have that hope today, they might respond to that truth by placing their trust in Christ. 
And Father, as we think about Easter coming this week, we are just so grateful, so grateful for the sacrifice that your son made. Let us be worshipful this week. Let us prepare our hearts to celebrate Easter. And we just lift all these things up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.